0: This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, uh, just a couple of days ago, I had a chance to speak with Wharton Professor Eric Bradlow, who you hear as one of the hosts of uh, Moneyball every Wednesday morning here on Sirius XM 132, talking about uh, the world of sports and analytics. Uh, He is also uh, a a very much uh, a professor of analytics uh, at the uh, Wharton School. And we had the chance to sit down the other day uh, over the internet using a conferencing platform to be able to talk about how analytics are are impacting our culture right now, especially with the coronavirus pandemic uh, around us. We also had the chance to speak a little bit about how the world of sports may be able to recover. So here's this uh, chance I had to uh, speak with Eric Bradlow just a couple of days ago. Well, as we continue our fast forward COVID-19 interviews, We begin to look ahead at how analytics will be impacting business and economies going forward. Eric Bradlow joins us. He's vice dean of analytics at the Wharton School. He's also a marketing professor, professor of economics, professor of statistics, professor of education. He is also, many of you know, is one of the hosts of Moneyball every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern time right here on Sirius XM 132. And a pleasure to talk to you, Eric. I hope you're doing well through all of this.
1: Yeah, Dan, it's great to be with you. And, uh, you know, we're on week six of uh, self-quarantining here and doing work and radio from home.
0: You know, it seems like analytics is playing a bigger role now in the understanding of what the impact of coronavirus is going to be. But looking ahead, what do you think having this understanding is going to mean for the future of analytics?
1: Yeah, so let me talk about it in two different ways. One is, um, obviously, a big part of the policy discussions around what to do, reopening the economy, et cetera, have been based on forecasts, and forecasts are based on assumptions. So I think, number one, it's gotten the whole populace more excited or more interested, if you like, on what assumptions are reasonable, what assumptions are supported by data, and what assumptions can actually help build a forecasting model. I think the second part is it's gotten. This is what we as statisticians say all the time. Um, it's a kind of a joke. We don't really have statisticians don't really have jokes. But if we had jokes, it would be like <laughs> you don't pay a statistician for a projection. You you pay a statistician for an uncertainty estimate. And so what I think people have also learned is that these confidence intervals, these intervals by which, whether it's the death rate, the number of people infected, these are still fairly wide intervals. We have some data, not a ton of data. Some of the data is unbiased. Some of it could be biased. And so I think analytics is going to play a huge role in both local and government-level decision-making going forward.
0: I mean, obviously, part of this is the fact that that a lot of analytics – is being used in so many different fashions already, um, but it does make you wonder if the reliance on this type of analysis even is taken up a few notches as we move forward as well. Look, let's in my view, let's be clear about this:
1: analytics here, statistics, projections testing, random sampling, you know, false negative, false positive rates. These are all obviously crucial to making an informed decision. But at the end of the day, in my view, it's a decision support tool. At the end of the day, the death rate is not going to go down to zero. The infection rate is not going to go down to zero. And so the the decision has to be, what level of trade-off, what level of risk or uncertainty are you willing to make decisions about? And that's the beauty that we're talking about this here at the Wharton School, because people that make Billion-dollar decisions in industry all the time have to decide what are the risk factors that could make this projection untrue. What are the risk factors that we could end up seeing a larger downside than we're expecting? And so, I have full belief that analytics is going to be is exactly the right decision support tool to both policymakers, to businesses, and to us as individuals about the risk that we we, we may be willing to take or not.
0: Well, and I think from the business side, obviously, when you're talking about what we're going through right now, you're seeing certain companies do very well right now. The companies that are able to provide products, and part of that is the analytics of what to bring in, what not to bring in, how much to stock. How do you how do you uh, uh, complete the supply chain? And this is information that obviously is benefiting these companies now, but it's going to benefit them moving forward. And also because of the fact that I don't think anybody sitting and talking about this expects this to be the last major event that we're going to have to deal with. So this is information that will help out down the road as well. Well, you bring up a lot of
1: different points. Let me at least address two of them. One will be one challenge businesses going forward face is you ramp up supply right now, because there's massive demand for certain, let's say in-home services, but that may not last forever. This is the classic OR, operations research problem of, if you heavy up supply and then demand is cyclical, then you can get stuck with oversupply. So one is businesses are going to face is, Massive demand now, that massive demand might not last. So that's one challenge. The second interesting part, I'll put on my department chair marketing hat now. I'll put on my marketing hat as opposed to my statistics (laughs) hat. I'll give an example for myself. Um, Our family had really not used any, let's call it home delivery services for groceries and other stuff. Well, lots of families are now choosing to do that. I'm now more likely to use it going forward. So let's imagine I'm one of the large online delivery services, of which Amazon is one, Instacart. There's lots of these services. Um, Maybe by now people trying this service out, this is what we talk about in marketing, the first step to adoption and routinized usage is trial. Well, lots of people are trying different products and services now, which may lead to longer time adoption. And As I speak to my colleagues, like for example, that are in the retailing business, et cetera, They're very concerned that this is going to lead to a longer-term shift to online adoption and online purchasing of products and maybe less from brick and mortar. So there's both the short-term, I'll call it analytics or mathematics, but there's the long-term behavioral change that may favor certain types of companies versus others.
0: Well, certainly what we're all going through right now, we know that there is an impact on small business. And the expectation is, that that is going to continue for some time. And it makes me wonder, and I'll ask this from two perspectives. One, in general, how much adoption of analytics do you think there is of by small business? And how much more could there be moving forward because we understand the value of having analytics as part of the decision process right now? Yeah, it's a good question. So I would say the following. I think a couple things
1: that may result from this is number one, which is, you know, we call it the old 80-20 rule of marketing, which is 80% of your revenue typically comes from 20% of your customers. Now, of course, you know, then the question is, which 20%? Well, I think small businesses are going to find out or be forced to find out very quickly, because I think I find it difficult or almost impossible to believe that the number of unique customers that most businesses are going to have is going to quickly go back to the level it was at before. Now that, by the way, I just said unique customers. I didn't say revenue. I didn't say profitability. I said the number of unique customers. So number one, people are going to have to use analytics to understand all customers are not created equal. The second thing people are going to have to focus on is as, as companies are trying to reacquire customers, it gets back to the three, my three favorite letters in marketing, which is CLV, customer lifetime value. You know, everyone's going to be rushing to acquire customers, but you want to acquire customers that are profitable. So I think that's another issue that's going to be challenging. And then the third part, I would say, is around optimal marketing, which is firms are going to be offering, they already are, are offering discounts. A lot of firms should start thinking of this as an opportunity to experiment what depth of discount should i give because for example let's imagine dan loney gets a discount offer for fifty percent off to try some service during these times well you might get used to paying fifty percent off so I think those three things, which is who are your profitable customers, thinking about customer lifetime value, and thinking about the impact of what we call acquisition via a certain channel. If you acquire people a certain way, they may get used to it. So I think all small businesses, they may not use that language or jargon, but they're going to be forced to be thinking about a smaller set of more profitable customers.
0: All right. Let's switch gears a little bit here, and I'll have you put your money ball hat on for a couple of minutes, because you and I are both... Uh, sports lovers, uh, and, and obviously I think from the business perspective, a lot of people are are really wondering what we're going to be seeing here in the next few months in terms of sports coming back. Uh, we're starting to hear, you know, little whispers, Major League Baseball talking about some ideas, golf, uh, pro golf talking about having tournaments without people there. How do sports, do you think, e- exit this pandemic, realizing that they have to deal with the uh, with the medical side of this as well? Yeah,
1: I view this in a, I'll call it a, at least a two, but maybe three dimensional axis, if you'd like. So one axis is, I'll call it the safety of the players and the social distancing component. So let's take an example. Two players could play a tennis match or a golf tournament and never actually come that close to each other. I'm not bumping up against you. There's no, if you'd like, sweat type of exchange. There's no potential blood, other stuff like that. So to me, one axis is Let's think of social distancing as a key dimension. Can, can the participants actually social distance and participate in the sport? Which is why you've already seen golf has announced that um, they're potentially coming back in June. They've got a list of tournaments. Now, the first four tournaments are going to be played with no fans there. So on one axis, you have can you social distance and still have the sport? The second part, as you know, Dan, is going to be the economics of it. Um, I love every sport. You've heard me talk about every sport on Moneyball. Um, I love golf and tennis. But let's be clear, um, it's not the NFL, it's not the NBA, it's not Major League Baseball, it's not NHL, it's not professional soccer leagues, etc. So the other axis you're going to have certainly is the economics part of it. And so what I think you're going to see in the short term is you're going to see a resumption of play, but you're going to see it. Um, you're going to see it in certain sports faster than others because of the economics, and you're probably going to see most sports having no fans or an extraordinarily limited number of fans to start with.
0: Well, what's interesting about that is also, as you say, the no fans aspect. I've heard several athletes talk about the fact that playing a game or playing their sport without any fans in the stands. It's just it's not as appealing to them. Uh, I read about Rory McIlroy talking about whether or not they should cancel the Ryder Cup this year if they're not going to have any fans in the in the crowd. And obviously, for that event, there is a nationalistic back and forth between uh, both both teams and both the sets of fans for the teams.
1: So let me let me address that in two ways from an analytics perspective. Um Number one. It's exciting from this perspective. If there's anything exciting and positive that could come out of this tragedy, there are some good things that can come out of purely from a mathematical or analytics perspective. So number one, um, let's imagine we look at performance. Well, we've got 50 years of data where there are fans in the stands. We can now look at performance. Like, for example, does a pitcher not get as amped up? And maybe we can look at pitch speeds. Um, Does a golfer maybe not hit the ball as far or maybe the golfer doesn't have to worry about hitting the crowd so the golfer can actually shoot the shot differently? So that's number one. The second, one of the biggest estimated effects in all of analytics is home field advantage. Well, now you could imagine we've talked about this on Moneyball a few times. There's typically two aspects to home field advantage. Number one. I get to sleep in my bed, you don't. Well, let's assume that teams still play in their home stadiums. Well, then I can say, well, Eric Bradlow was sleeping in his own bed. Dan Loney was not. But there's no advantage because my fans are in the seats and yours aren't. It Actually, it's one of these optimal decouplings where I can say, I wonder if home field is due to rest or being in your home, or is it actually due to the fans? And so there's a lot of possibilities where interesting data that we as analysts will look at for years to come could actually emerge from this tragedy. It's not a good thing, but if the sports are going to start, let's take advantage of this data opportunity to understand these things better.
0: Well, and I think let me take that one step further, because that dynamic, when you go to the college level, I think is obviously a factor and maybe even more so the potential impact of not having fans in the stands at an Alabama football game or, you know, a Duke basketball game. And then you're getting back into the business side of this because we've already heard the stories about how college athletic programs are starting to cut back. There's concerns of budgeting, what teams will be able to do. You know, football teams bring in a lot of revenue, how that economic side, or or not having the fans is going to impact the economic side moving forward. Well, two aspects
1: of that that you mentioned. Number one, um, it would be a little bit um, challenging. The perceptual nature of it. If all of a sudden the only students back on campus at the University of Alabama are the football players, um, that would be challenging um, from many perspectives. And then the second aspect you bring up is let's imagine, like for example, all the spring sports got canceled this year. Um, As you know, college players in many sports are the pipeline to the pros. It'll be very interesting to see what happens you know, a year, two years, three years from now. Let's imagine college athletics has to change in some systematic way. Well, maybe there's not as much pipeline into the professional level. So I think it's a challenge both at the current collegiate level, and there could well be an impact for people um, where college is the gateway to the professional
0: level. Eric, great information as always. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, and it's great to be with you, Dan. Wharton Professor Eric Bradlow joining us. uh, Interview we did a couple of days ago. Great to have him back uh, with us again. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.